Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Some people collect stamps or coins or trading cards. And as you've heard on our show before, some people collect barf bags or tiny chairs or bricks. But some people's collections are a bit darker. Come with me as I tour the John Zaffis Museum of the Paranormal in Stratford, Connecticut. John has spent decades investigating paranormal activity. His museum is full of items he's collected along the way. Stuffed animals, ceremonial clothing, clocks, and so much more. Some people have sent him these objects, hoping that if they part with these things, their bad luck, or at least some bad vibes, will evaporate. But we're going to start off with William Harder of Fresno, California, whose interview warrants a quick note that some of what we talk about may not be appropriate for young children because he has curated one of the largest collections of art solely created by convicted murderers and serial killers. And I'm just going to say that, yeah, I feel you tensing up right now because I'm tensing up too. We're going to talk about that discomfort as well as what he's learned about the psyche of these killers after seeing so much of their artwork. William says he's always been fascinated with and confused by the human ability to hurt one another and animals. In his early 20s, he was Googling Richard Ramirez, also known as the California Night Stalker. He was convicted of killing at least 13 people in the mid-80s. William stumbled across a website that showed some of Ramirez's artwork, and something in him said... I had to have that. And of course, you can't go to Walmart to get stuff like this. So I had to find his address and write him a letter. And that, you know, when that first letter came back, that response, uh, I was just kind of hooked from that point. And that was it. I was ready to uh, ready to rock. Will you go back with me to when you first got Ramirez's artwork, like when it was in your hands? Can you describe the painting and, and what it felt like to receive it? Oh, it was exciting. It was so exciting. It was a little... uh it was a first piece of artwork he sent me. It was a pen drawing. It was like a little self-portrait of a, of a very silly sort of cartoon character holding up a hand with a little pentagram in it. And he had signed it, Richard Ramirez, and Night Stalker. It mean, it's something, you know, my eight-year-old nephew could have drawn. But it, the fact that it came from the prison and, you know, it had the envelope with the little prison stamp. And it was just, I just really liked it. And, you know, it progressed. I said, you know, I'll start writing some other folks. Before I knew it, I was visiting with, you know, Charles Manson and, and getting very elaborate, very um, valuable type uh, craft items and, and artwork. And it just, it is still exciting. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's folks I've been writing to for years. And when they take the time out to put together a little uh, package of artwork, it's, it's exciting. It's always, it's always fun. I think when I, as me, Kion Wolf, imagine getting an envelope in the mail with artwork or a note or a scribble from someone who's murdered someone or someone's and worse. 
Um, I think there's a tension in me that is incredibly uncomfortable, like to be near this object. And I'm, I'm not superstitious, but there's, and I don't know about like vibrations. I mean, everything is vibrations. That's true. But I, I, when I picture myself getting something like this, I recoil and my breath holds and I don't want to see it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be reminded of pain. I don't want to be reminded of the darkness of humanity. Right? So what's different between me and you? Well, most, most people would sit down and would have a kosher rack of lamb and not think about the lamb being hoisted upside down by a hook screaming. People don't think about that. They completely accept it as being, this is beautiful, this tastes so good, but it's horrific. I understand that the artwork, look, it's all sad. Nothing about this is happy. It, it will take a toll, especially when you're like reading letters and you can really see how you know, some of these, you know, people think of Charles Manson and I just use him as an example because everybody knows the name. They think, oh, this monster, this, 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 that. And, but man, when you think of, when you see his life for what it really was, and it was sad, it was just sad. And I'm, I'm so grateful that my life hasn't been like that. And that's one of the ways I'm able to keep doing this because I think my life's been pretty good. And I know that by dealing with some of these individuals that didn't have that, I'm able to kind of show them, hey, you know, you got cheated out of something. It wasn't meant to be like this. Whether it was their actions or circumstance that led them to the crimes they committed, why doesn't it uh, bother me? I would, I would liken it to superstition that I don't believe in make believe, and and I don't think that. They, I mean, I've got human skulls in my home and stuff that people, the people that painted it did horrific, horrific things, and um, I don't ever get that feeling. And my house is actually, it's pretty happy. But when you sit down and, you know, I've had people say, hey, who did this or who did that? And it's, yeah, it's sad. I collect sadness. But again, I, I just love it. I don't know how to explain it, why I don't get that gut reaction that most people would get. Let's imagine your house is burning down. You can save three pieces of artwork. What are they? Photos of my, me, me and my visits because... My pinnacle piece of my collection is the experience, you know, my life with the thrill kill culture, with this serial killer lifestyle. Like I get to meet victims. I get to meet prosecutors, police, the offenders themselves, their families. Nothing replaces that those interactions and uh, nothing I have supersedes that in my mind as being the most valuable as far as stuff's concerned, if it was, you know, if I was worried about things on a financial level, which is probably how I would break it down, uh, I've got an Ed Gein autograph, which would be extremely difficult to replace, um, and probably the Charles Manson string artworks, because, well, one of them was given to me by, by Manson, so I would, that one would be the one I'd want to grab. Gosh, I hope the house doesn't burn down now. <laughs> I do not want that for you, or anyone. When you receive a piece of artwork from someone who's murdered people, um, do you know what you're going to get? And when you open it up and see it, has there ever been one that kind of took you by surprise? Sometimes I'll specifically ask for artwork. The first uh, 16 by 20 pieces I ever got were from a New York serial killer named Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River killer from New York. And he had asked me for some typewriter ribbons. They were like 
40 bucks or 50, whatever they, I don't even remember, but they, they were $36, but he asked me if I could get him some typing ribbons. So I just ordered the ribbons and sent it to him. And he sent me a letter back. He's like, well, but you didn't say what you wanted. And I said, was I supposed to, I mean, you asked for ribbons. I just got them. And he just sent me these two 16 by 20 vinyl paintings. And they were just, I had no idea they were coming. They were amazing. And I was, I still have them framed or on the wall. It wasn't just the stick type figures that Ramirez was doing. These were actually, it was really nice artwork to me. I've had a couple guys send me stuff uh, by surprise. I've had one guy who won't write to me because he thinks I'm weird. And he sends me paintings every once in a while, just because I always like I'll every year I make sure to send him a, a couple of Valentine's cards to give to his um, significant other and a couple of uh, uh, Mother's Day and Christmas. I always because I know his, his family's alive. So I'll send him these things and just say, look, I know you're not going to write back, but, you know, this is for your family. I hope you put them to good use. So I'll give him like two or three to choose from and always tell him to pass the other ones around to the people around him that might not have anybody to get them nice cards. And every couple of years he'll send me a really nice painting and, and i've just everything he sent me i've framed and it's um a weird sort of um relationship i know you can't speak for them and you wouldn't dare but from what you have gleaned from your conversations with some of them what do you think making this artwork does for them it's a way to pass the time it's a way to, you know, they say, oh, we're giving them this fame and this infamy. And it's like, you know, I think a lot of them are just thinking about trying to making making a few dollars to get things like shampoo and conditioner. This this assumption that inmates are making, dude, Gacy was you know, making like $75, you know, $120 for his silly paintings. And he was an exception. Most guys just do it because it does pass the time. It does feel good. And, and to send stuff to family and friends and then to see it on their wall, you feel a sort of connection and they know that they're being thought of because most people are just regular folks in prison. They're not, you know, when you talk about high profile cases, you're talking about 200 people of 2.4 million people incarcerated in the United States. You know, most people just want to do things nice. And I think it's uh, I think it feels good the way they do it. There are some people behind bars that you're working with and who send you art who I'm assuming wish they hadn't done what they had done. I'd like to believe that for some of them. And there are also people behind bars who not only admit to it, but are proud of it and are satisfied and wish they were out so they could do it some more. Right. And there like, are, there are a few people like that, you know, and that's why we have prisons. But like when they're sending art, does that art feel different than someone who, yeah, I really screwed up back then. I really wish that hadn't happened. Like, does that art feel different to you? I mean, yes and no. I, I guess there was a guy's name uh, was Roy Norris. One of the uh, he was part of a, a pair, and he definitely was the more remorseful and sorry of the two. And Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, the Toolbox Killers, both did a lot of artwork for me. I mean, I'm trying to think who I liked more, whose artwork I liked more. I mean, they, I liked them both, and I was close with both. They um. Both were pretty rotten. Larry being a, the, the one who was the least remorseful was definitely a, just one of the most rotten people I've ever met. But I, I mean, in, in, in the moment and in the, in the time when we were actively uh, corresponding and visiting, I liked the artwork that he did because it was intricate. He did a lot of craft stuff, pop-up type cards, and they were just real genius the way he'd put them together. And I, 
the fact that he was kind of unrepentant and seemed to somewhat relish a little bit in what he did, it didn't bother me. He was, I mean, his, he's in prison for, for what he did. Whether he's sorry for it is, is irrelevant. His punishment was to be housed in the California state prison at San Quentin until his, he was executed. And he died of natural causes. So his sentence is, um, is done. You've said that you just wanted to understand these people, like ever since you were young. Like what makes someone want to kill someone else when they don't have to? <laughs> Why would they do that? Yeah. And stabbing. Like I didn't understand the stabbing, like, like, like shooting. I could get shooting because it was like something from a distance. But as a kid, I'm like, how does a, it just seemed so intimate. Yeah. Yucky. Yeah. Like, so mean, you've been saying that like, you want to understand. And now you've had, you've developed relationships with some of these serial killers. You of course have their artwork and, and other memorabilia. So after all these years, what have you learned about why these people do this? People are savage. And people are indifferent. It, it goes back to that, that rack of lamb. People don't think about it. They don't care about it. You think the guy who works at the slaughterhouse thinks twice about cutting the throats of, of little lambs? But most people don't serial kill. Like, that. What, what have you discovered about what makes these people... The indifference to suffering. The indifference to suffering is the same. There's not a... It's like, you know, you know, somebody loves their their wife one way and their son another way, but it's still love. The person who's cutting the throats of the sheep is in or the lambs is indifferent to their screams and their fear and their crying. A, a, a person who kills people for recreation. It's just a, a higher level of indifference. They've taken where there should be a compassion and 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 replaced it with this indifference that I believe all of us have the capacity to have, but we, you know, with the confines of laws and the fear of losing our belongings and our station and status, we don't kill each other. If you take away the laws and the water and the electricity, we will all start to kill each other very quickly. As soon as food starts to get scarce, people will do the most horrific things to each other. And, and, and that's just because that's what's in us. The reason I think, you know, a lot of serial killers come from poor backgrounds. They don't have nice things. Uh, Ramirez didn't have nice things. You know, he didn't have anything to lose. A lot of these guys don't have those. They, they didn't make it to the nice things level. So they don't have to worry about that. Losing those things. That, and which is why I always find it unusual when, when a person who's taken themselves to a, you know, to a, a station like Gacy or Dennis Rader, you know, businesses, active in church, working with children, you know, having children, and then they're doing this in their free time. It's like, they seem to have all the trappings of normal life. But I mean, if, if you look back through history, military leaders, presidents, dictators, kings, all doing horrific things. and. Um, I mean, I mean, slavery, segregation, you know, the, I mean, and again, normal, seemingly normal people are dragging people through the streets and stringing them up because of their skin color. The savageness is in people. So I, the notion that is, this is somehow a, this isn't most people. It is. That's a realization that like, I see what you're saying. 
And I also want to push back and be like, yeah, but I wouldn't do it. I, I, Kion, have you met me? I'm very nice. I'm very nice. I would never do that. But I hear you saying that you see the killer in me and you're grateful that I am not at that level yet. If you and I were together and we were in a plane and it crashed on an island and there was nothing to eat, one of us is going to kill the other one eventually to eat. And it would be me. Yeah, I'm real sorry. Well, we have covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that you really want people listening to consider before we finish our conversation? I, I certainly believe uh, in, in, in law and order. I believe people should be punished for their crimes and be made to atone. I don't believe in the death penalty. Uh, that being said, you know, victims' rights end where my rights begin. And this is America. We are a capitalist society. If the sale of this sort of stuff offends you, don't buy it. Banning things is about as un-American as it gets. Jesus said to remember the imprisoned. It's real easy to pass judgment than say somebody's a piece of shit and not have the life circumstances they've had. I'll, I'll end by saying it. You know, Susan Smith in South Carolina drowned her two children and America was just, what a horrible mother. And, well, she's a monster and this and that. And, and my reaction was, what a horrible place she must have been in her life to think killing her two children was the answer. And if people were thought that way a little bit more, I think we'd be a little nicer to each other. And, and that's certainly what we need a little more of. William Harder. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. When we get back, explore a plethora of spooky objects at the John Zaffis Paranormal Museum. He called me up here to tell me about it. He said, next time you're here, you're taking Winnie the Pooh because it's haunted. I said, no, not Pooh. No. Not Pooh. Not Pooh. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Next up on our Dark Collections episode... My name's John Zaffis. I'm a paranormal investigator. Um, I run the John Zaffis... Paranormal Museum here in Stratford, Connecticut, and uh, been involved with the paranormal field for the past uh, 50 years of my life and collect a lot of crazy and wild and weird things. When John was 16, 
He awoke one morning to a transparent, ghostly figure hovering at the end of his bed. It was silently shaking its head back and forth. He ran downstairs to tell his mom, and she explained that that apparition was his grandfather, who died when John was four. Now, it's important for you to know that his mother, Babe, was the twin sister of Ed Warren. Ed and Lorraine Warren were a married couple who were very well known for their paranormal investigations of alleged hauntings here in Connecticut, but also globally. You may remember the Amity horror film series. I'm coming apart! Oh, mother of God, I'm coming apart! And the haunting in Connecticut. All those poor souls in torment, they're still there. They're in the house. You must get out now! And the Conjuring Universe series. Sometimes demons can attach themselves to objects. All of them were inspired by, or at least included reference to, the work of the Warrens. Ed called himself a demonologist, and Lorraine identified as a clairvoyant and medium, claiming to be able to communicate with the dead. Together they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. It's the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. And together, the couple investigated more than 10,000 cases over the decades. Ed died in 2006, and Lorraine died in 2019. So, okay, back to their young nephew, John Zaffis. After his encounter with his grandfather's ghost, John felt called to the family business and started working with Ed and Lorraine. During investigations, he would collect some items that were, well, spooky, to say the least. And sometimes over the years, people would send him items that they found spooky. And those are the things that John Zaffis has been collecting in a whole separate wing of his home in Stratford, Connecticut for 12 years now. And it's not your traditional museum. It's more like your average suburban Connecticut home that happens to be on a dead-end street. In two large rooms, he has shelves and shelves full of Artifacts, clocks, swords, dolls, artwork, and difficult-to-identify objects. The very brave Connecticut public photojournalist Tyler Russell joined me as we walked downstairs into the museum, and oof, I was feeling some things. I gotta say, I'm not superstitious. I I I believe in energy. I mean, everything is vibration, but I energy. Yep. But I I don't want there to be negative energy. Oh, you just turned the lights on. <laughs> but you can't deny. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, a thousand questions. Where do we start? Wherever you want. Pick a spot. <laughs> <laughs> when you receive these items, or you bring these items here. Is there any sort of ceremony or something that you do with them between the, their arrival and their being put on a shelf? Yes. It's called the binding and prayers to help seal the energy or break the energy. So I go from a Roman Catholic perspective. I will bless them. I will put holy water on them. Some of the items you look at will have salt around them. When you receive an object, if you don't know the story behind it, do you ever sense something too? Sometimes, yes. When an item comes in, I open it up outside, and sometimes I'll pick it up and I'll go, oh, all right, there's, there's something creepy with this. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Then there's a, other times I'll pick things up and I go, nothing to it. Then again, too, I work with a lot of gifted people, psychic people, mediums, and when they're around, they're visiting or something, I'll go check this out and 
A lot of times they'll verify it. And I go, you know what? I didn't feel nothing or sense anything around it. So sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Okay, so some of this stuff looks really innocent and some of this stuff looks really spooky. Like it's, you've got a little bit of everything, which throws me off, right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like I'm trying to listen to my inner guidance system mm -hmm. and seeing if there are any objects that make me feel weird and... Over in this end of it too is where you started really picking it up. <laughs> yeah, because over here is the darker stuff. Oh, well. And when I say the darker stuff used in rituals or people did different type of practices and did different things. So, so it's no coincidence I would start no, feeling a little weird right, right here. God, this would be such an interesting test of intuition. I only in the last couple of years realized I had one mm -hmm. and at the cost of not realizing I had one, I learned very quickly and suddenly that I did. And I've been curious about it because like, what's what the hell is intuition? Like, what are we picking up on? And how can we get better at knowing it and hearing it clearly and yeah see the way i interpret it and the way i look at it is once you do have an experience like what you were just saying you're using it as a tool to be able to help you and to be able to guide you and i always tell people that people tell me, i don't want to hear it i don't want to know nothing i want no part of it and i go you don't have a choice there's a reason why that's occurring and happening so use it to your advantage instead of your disadvantage and then when you learn to use it, you use it to help other people too. Correct. That's the way I look at it and the way I perceive it, so. Oh, when I was a kid, I used to draw bunnies. I made one called Super Bunny. He had flexed and it had like a cape and everything. So I'm drawn to this dapper, well-dressed bunny. Okay. What, do you, what do you know? That is what, another one of these types of stories you can't make up. That came from a Jewish person. Okay, she lived next door to a store. And they had given this woman this bunny, and she's Jewish, and told her to put it on her front porch. So she put it on her front porch, started having a lot of different uh, type of activity. I knew one of her relatives, and his relatives had called me and uh, had gone over just to see, to help her out. And I looked at her and I go, why in the world would you have an Easter bunny on your front porch? And she goes, well, they next door, they told me to put it there, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I went, I got a sneaky feeling somebody did something here to you know cause problems so i removed it and everything she had talked to them several different times and um felt that they might have done something over the bunny not even realizing she was jewish and giving it to her because they wanted the property to tear down the house for a parking lot so when you start putting these pieces together and these things happen it's bizarre how the stor stories fall into place do you believe that someone could spiritually insert bad energy into an object. And Absolutely. That, I mean, I figured, but. With intent and purpose is the worst because when it's done deliberately, it's even more difficult to try to figure out sometimes what a person had done. Thus trying to piece it together to be able to break some of those uh, bindings of the negative energy that could be attached or something that they summoned towards an item. And what I mean by that is somebody can create something to it and that when a person touches it, it gravitates towards the individual automatically. There's spells and rituals to do things like that. So, and I believe very strongly in that stuff that people do do that. You had said that when you receive an object, you, you give it a blessing you have, and it's usually specific to the object and you've mm -hmm. got a whole protocol. 
Are you confident that you have protected yourself from these negative energies that are all around us? No. Always have to keep your guard up. You always have to watch what you're doing. Do I fall prey to things? Yes, because sometimes I don't think. And I just go, eh, okay, I'm not going to worry about it. Boom, all of a sudden I'll start having some activity kick up and I'll go, why so much right now? And I'll go, ah, I didn't even do anything, didn't protect myself, thus left myself very wide open. So again, it's 24-7 when you get involved with this stuff, especially when I start working on a lot of cases with the negative stuff or the very dark, dark stuff. I have to work twice as hard to be able to protect myself. How do you protect yourself? In my faith and what I believe in. I believe very strongly in the positive. I feel very, very strong in the power of prayer, chanting, humming, and it's a positive thing and it's, ooh, and it's brought in to be able to help protect people. So I believe very strongly in that. Okay, let's see what else pops up. Okay. A Santa Claus version of Winnie the Pooh. What could possibly have Winnie happened? Winnie the Pooh when... came from a very bad haunted house. Uh, it was Christmas time. The family was setting all their Christmas decorations up. And they had him on the uh, mantle on the fireplace. The father and daughter would you know, get up in the morning and they would find it on the floor. And they thought they were doing it to each other to tease each other. And then the father got freaked out and he put it on the solar stairs. Next day... He came up and it was out back in the living room. Then he took it and packed it down in the basement, back in the Christmas boxes. And again, it happened. He called me up. He was telling me about it. He said, next time you're here, you're taking Winnie the Pooh because it's haunted. I said, no, not Pooh. No. Not Pooh. Not Pooh. <laughs> Is there any item in here that if I leave and I haven't gotten the story of it, you will have a feeling of emptiness you will never overcome? Probably the wedding dress that came from a young lady. She was preparing at home, getting ready for her wedding. And the church was just down the street from the house. And she told everybody to go to the church. She just wanted to walk over by herself. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting. She didn't show up. An hour later, they found her strangled behind the church. And for many years, the wedding gown was just placed up in the attic by the mother and father. But how tragic was something like that? Because they were getting older and they had to break down the house. And when they decided that they were getting rid of it, a haunting broke out. But to me, I don't find that to be a bad haunting. I found it to be a beautiful type story that she was still letting her know that, you know, her energy was still with the dress. When you say ghosts, when you say haunting, like, what do you think it is? Um, I believe very strongly in the power of energy. And it could take on very many different forms. I believe we have certain type of energy that's affiliated that has an intelligence to it. Years ago, I would say, I would always interpret some, if somebody got scratched or pushed, <gasps> we always thought it was a devil and demon. I don't look at it that way anymore. Because if a person was very nasty and mean when they were alive, they're going to be like that as a ghost. So thus, I had to reevaluate a lot of the ways I look at things in the way I think about different things. And that moves right along with the simple fact, you know, I can't rule out paranormal activity being involved with so many of us being part of our DNA. We get sugar diabetes, high blood pressure. We get all these other things. What's to say that we don't inherit something that has something to do with the paranormal? 
and certain people are able to bring it to the fourth. And I, I believe very strongly in that. How do you think one can help a spirit that's stuck? Can we do anything for them? Sometimes. Because that's been a running joke with me over the years. I'll always hear people that are gifted, medium, psychics. Oh, we're going to Gettysburg to cross all the soldiers over. What happened? They're all still there. <laughs> so I do believe, and I've seen it and witnessed it, where sometimes you go in and you're working on the case and you're uh, getting information. The psychics are picking up on things or the mediums are picking up on things or certain sentences. People will say certain things. You could say certain things and boom, the haunting can stop. It brought closure. Whatever it was searching and doing for, you were able to reveal it and able to bring closure at that point in time for that spirit, and that spirit can cross over. Does it happen often? No, but it does happen, and it's a beautiful thing to witness and see. After the break, more from the John Zaffis Paranormal Museum. Grandfather clock, three years in a row, the door opened up, and I called her up and I go, mid-January, the door opens up on the clock. And I go, any significance? She goes, yeah, that's when he died. She says, I told you that old man was with that clock. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and you're with me on a tour of the John Zaffis Paranormal Museum in Stratford, Connecticut. John is the nephew of the famous paranormal investigators and Connecticut residents Ed and Lorraine Warren. He's been collecting objects with spooky stories and wonky vibes for years. Some of them he's picked up from sites he's inspected, and others people have sent to him. Connecticut public photojournalist Tyler Russell joined me, and you can listen along while checking out the beautiful photos he took. That's at ctpublic.org audacious. All right, let's get back to our tour of the museum. After all these years, when you come down here, what are you feeling? What are you sensing, personally? Very numb to everything. Because people say that to me, they'll come down here and they'll be picking up on everything and picking up on stuff. And, and I'll be like, I feel nothing. I sense nothing down here. And many of my spiritual friends just tell me, they go, you are so numb to everything now that nothing phases you. So I look at that as a good and a positive because I think that's part of what helps protect me with a lot of stuff. It's like, don't bother me, I don't have time. It means nothing. What do you say to people who roll their eyes at all of this and don't buy it for a second? Well, we have to look at the big picture today. You know, religions, organized religions are deteriorating across the board, no matter what religion it is. Thus, people are looking at things from another perspective. That's the spiritual. We know there's something going on. We know something's happening. I hear this so often from people. And they'll go, you're going to think I'm so bad. And I'll go, why? You're searching. You're looking. That's your choice. Thus, then somebody will tell me, never believed in anything. And I moved into this house. And I think there's a ghost in the house. I started having problems. I got to look at things totally differently now. And I go, you're really not. You're just searching. You're looking. You're gaining knowledge. Thus, that's going to move you to the next step 
of evolving on whatever it may be. It doesn't mean you have to follow something structured or organized, but your spirituality will develop and it's going to move forward. That's my best explanation for that. Tyler, which one stuck, stood out to you? Yeah, there's this really interesting dichotomy between what is clearly a Halloween mask from a handful of years ago and something that was clearly made for a purpose. Okay. And it's just, it's interesting to see these things next to each other. And like, okay. what is the difference in those stories? Not really all that much. This you're referring to was created and that was created by an artist. Now, what most people don't stop and even realize when an artist creates something, their essence goes into it. Their passion. It's unbelievable with how many times I'll deal with items that are created, especially artwork or anything. And, you know, it's a part of them. Now, that mask that you're referring to, that was used in rituals, not created by an individual, but yet the intent and purpose was still there with both items. One manufactured, one created. Mm, it's beautiful. You've placed kind of these two as a focal point here. That right there is referred to as the idol that came from a young man. Um, he was uh, 15, 16 years old. And one night he came downstairs screaming and crying and told his parents he created something. And it was up in his room. They went up into his room. And he had an altar set up, and this was in the middle of it. And he goes, whatever I conjured up is in there, and now it is telling me to kill myself. Well, they called their minister. The minister called me. I broke down the altar and removed it, and the kid didn't get involved with anything after that because the minister wouldn't even touch the altar. He was petrified of the whole thing. So, And the focal point to the painting right there, that was left in an attic, a crawl space in a home that a person had purchased. And as they were getting ready to move in and clean things out, they found a lot of occult creepy things in this crawl space set up and they totally freaked out and asked me to come over and remove them all. You're a Roman Catholic. How does it feel when you see anything that is related specifically to your faith come in here? Does it feel different at all? No. Uh, actually, there's a ton of stuff right over here that's been used in occult activity. This came from a Satanist. He used it in reverse for doing incantations and doing different things. Like some sort of necklace with a cross on it? Well, it, it was actually a uh, rosary, rosary. Oh, that's at one a, time, yeah. What do you think it's made out of? Because it looks like it's made out of skin. Uh, well, he actually got a, a bunch of tape and he just wrapped it around it because it was falling apart. And it's yellowed? Yes. I have always wanted a cuckoo clock. What can you tell me about this? That one's clock? haunted. They had it fixed several different times. It would go back to just one particular time and it would keep going off at that time framing. Then it would totally stop. Then it would start back up again. And she went back to where she bought it. And she was asking the people and they said that it was the person's favorite thing that they had. And um, the woman felt that there was energy to it. She wanted to give it back to the woman. The woman didn't want it back, so it ended up here. Grandfather clock was in a family for many years. Uh, gentleman's father passed away. He inherited it. The wife did not like her father-in-law. Uh, she kept claiming she smelt his tobacco near it, and he was standing near it. The clock had to come out of the house. 
She told me if I didn't take the clock, she was going to throw it out. I felt bad for the poor guy. And I said, well, if you ever want it back, let me know. He goes, that'll never happen. But the bizarre thing was in, it was in January, mid-January, three years in a row, the door opened up. And I called her up and I go, mid-January, the door opens up on the clock. And I go, any significance? She goes, yeah, that's when he died. She says, I told you that old man was with that clock. If one spirit made it past your initial blessing or cleansing and has been lingering here, and while you are all, including your dog, Barney, away on vacation, this angry, hateful spirit creates an electrical fire and burns down the house. What do you think would be one object that would eerily remain in the wreckage? There is a crystal ball, I think it's upstairs, that was in a big fire in a store. It was the only thing that existed that they were able to pull out of the fire. And uh, the woman was a witch. She had called me, it was an occult store. And she goes, I can't believe it. That's the only thing that survived. She says, you want it? I go, yeah, we'll take a look when we go back up. I think it's up on one of the shelves, right? on this side over here. Because unfortunately that whole side turned into storage. I've heard the idea that um, energy can communicate through electricity. Oh, absolutely. And so a lot of times light fixtures yes. are affected. Yes, energy's energy. One of our best sources, you know, today, because people say that to me, why do I think so much activity is picked up today? I go, we're using cell phones, we're using cameras, we're using computers. I said, all these electrical devices, that's all energy. Then when you combine it with our energy, it's going to activate things in certain locations, thus making more activity happen. Absolutely. I have had a very hard time resisting touching things, but I've done a good job. I also don't want to touch them. I do, but I don't. Do you think if I touch something that there would be some sort of transfer? Oh, don't take that chance. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I'm not going to take that chance. Because you've encountered not only so many objects, but so many people with so many stories, I'm sure there are some that you think, oh, yeah, this, I agree, that's wild that that happens, and I kind of feel it too. Are there ever people who come to you, and they've got an object, and they're telling you this story, and you're, you're not really feeling it, and you kind of think, oh, you might be creating this. It's not actually in there. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? You got to be guarded and careful. Um, thin line between something being paranormal and a person being ticky ticky tock tock. So you got to walk that fine line on trying to determine what you could be dealing with because you could also send somebody that is ticky ticky tock tock off the deep end. So a lot of times if somebody's really insistent and they're driving me, to that point, I'll go, okay, you think it's haunted, it's haunted, and we'll just move forward and see what we could do to help you out. And then they feel so much better. <laughs> Mission accomplished. It does help sometimes. It does help sometimes. You have a family legacy of mm -hmm. thinking about this sort of stuff. You are the nephew of Ed and Lorraine Warren, mm -hmm. famous paranormal investigators. They are now both deceased. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're... Looking down on you? Absolutely. I know that for a fact. He communicates a lot. 
and he'll come back and forth when we're doing different events and stuff. Uh, we use a piece of equipment where voices come through. And a lot of times his voice will come through and I recognize it. And we'll go back and forth having conversations. And um, even Lorraine comes through at a certain times and they'll go back and forth. And you can hear them arguing back and forth. Now, I don't go just by myself saying that. I go more by when there's other people with me, especially people I've worked with over the years. And they'll go, Johnny, if we didn't know Bester, and if I didn't know Ed and Lorraine, I'd swear you were making all that up. And they go, you're arguing with your cell phone. I go, no, I'm not. I'm arguing with them. I said, they're here. I said, you know how they were when they were alive? They're the same way dead. They don't want to be forgotten. So again, that does occur and that does happen. And I find it interesting and intriguing when it does, especially when there's people around that knew us all or worked with us or family members or something, because they just take that step back and go, if I just didn't witness and hear that, I would never believe that. I go, well, you did. So you must not fear death. No, I don't. I don't fear death at all. And, you know, people say, well, you're going to make one of the best ghosts. I say, I have no interest. And I'm telling, and I say this all the time to special a lot of people, I'll go, and don't provoke and try and bring me back. Leave me the hell alone. No pun intended. I say, I did this all this year. So I'm not going to be interested then. But um, they're going to go, well, yeah, but you might be a, one of those people that are going to be able to come back and give us information. I said, why would it be me? We know thousands of people that have crossed over and we all tell them, come back and tell us what it's like. How come they haven't done it? There's got to be a reason we don't get that information. I said, so don't count on me being able to break that wall down. <laughs> what do you think that reason is? I feel that a lot of people would not be able to handle the truth. I've heard this from a lot of people I know, spiritual people, no matter what the religion is, they go, John, if you ever really knew the truth on what things were based, it would blow everything right out of the water. And I go, well, what does that mean? I can handle it. I can understand it. And they go, no, you wouldn't. And, and I do believe wholeheartedly also to that, the simple fact that um, if we did know the truths of a lot of different things, I, don't think people would actually look at organized religions the same way. I really don't think they would. Thus, would cause a big crash for a lot of people that can only rely upon that and put out all their faith within something. So again, that's evolving. You know, again, to me, the simple fact, if you can't evolve, and you can't move forward, we're never going to get anywhere in this field. You have to. You have to You have to look in between and go, possibility. Is there a possibility there's a time warp? Is there a possibility that there's these different levels that things can come through? Is there life on other planets? Yeah, I believe that. Is there little green men? I don't freaking know. But there's no doubt in my mind that there's something else out there. Because people ask me a lot of times, do, do I believe in cryptozoology? Yes. What's that? Uh, Bigfoot, uh, Loch Ness Monster, and a lot of those different things. How come we never found one? I think there's a time warp that they go back and forth through. That's why we never caught a Bigfoot running through the woods or caught uh, the Loch Ness Monster or any of the creatures they talk about. Well, John Zaffis, well, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much I appreciate it. Oh, I hope your house doesn't burn down.
I hope not either. <laughs> okay, that that this just came in yesterday. Was, That's a haunted oh, is it item. another? Yeah, but I haven't opened it yet. When you get something in the mail, do you say a prayer or do that before you open it? No, I won't do. I won't do anything with this till I bring it outside and open it. Do you want to do that now, or would you rather you have? Want that? You want I, that? I would be honored. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't. Ah. What's the note say? Many blessings. Oh, okay, okay. This is from uh, someone I knew, and she had picked it up, and she felt that there was something with it. Might not necessarily be haunted, but as you can see, I'm opening it up outside here. I believe very strongly in the sun also. Okay, here it is, just a little statue. Of a cat. I, a cat, we were just talking about cats not that long ago. See that? And she felt that there uh, was definitely something attached to it. Actually, it was willed to her. Somebody left it to her, if I remember correctly. Well, you got to see me open up an item. Now what do you do with it? Well, now I would have to do the do a couple of my prayers over it, a little bit of the salt and the holy water, and hopefully that will eventually take care of it if there is something with it. Well, I hope you help her. I mean, you Hopefully already everything have. will calm down. If I hear from her now in a couple of days, she tells me everything calmed down, then it helped her. And that's more important than anything else. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Jessica Severin Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our courageous interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. Check out those photos from our visit to the museum, made by our brave photojournalist, Tyler Russell, at ctpublic.org audacious. And stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kyone Wolf. And you can always send me an email, audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks.